space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Film is Lit podcast. It's 25-year mission. That's right, we're recording for 25 years. Is to compare and contrast books to their TV and movie adaptations, to seek out new meanings in the author's text, to boldly eat potatoes made from your own poopy. Welcome to Film is Lit. I'm I'm Danny. I'm the film expert. I'm Laura. I'm the lit expert. Hell yeah, you are. And we did have potatoes this morning. It's good. Um, today we have a doozy of an episode. A great episode. I say that every time, but I, I mean it this time, and I meant it the other times too. <laughs> today we have a guest host, and finally someone, a friend. So impersonal to me because we've had your whole family. It's time for me to step up to the plate. Today, our guest is my old brother, Matt. Matt, say hi. Hey, I don't, I don't, I don't really go by old, but uh, older, older sounds good. You're old as shit. Yeah. No, you got gray hair. Yeah. Call yeah. Him out. I was thinking. I'm like, what's the term again? Because there's oldest brother, middle brother. Yeah, I said. I don't know why I said old brother coming out. Didn't mean you to. Could have said elderly. Instead no, elderly is even no, worse. Elder, That's the wrong direction. Like, but elder brother rather yeah. than elderly. Oldest brother, older brother, Matt. Yeah, finally. Yeah, someone from my family. And we have a great book and movie that we're covering today. This was, again, all of our guests, they're the ones who suggest what we cover on this podcast. And today, Matt picked the book and movie, The, the Martian. Martian. What a piece of literature and film we, mm -hmm. we loved it and i guess we'll get into journeys real quick but i should start off by saying that matt was the person who first introduced this book to me before it became popular he was a true hipster in that sense because this book like blew up soon after it was published but there was a small period you know with all art that not a lot of people had read it, and yeah, Matt was the first, so. Well, plus, I think it was Andy Weir's first book, so he wasn't a well-known writer either, and now he has quite a following because of The Martian and a couple other novels, but right. well, nothing before this. Yeah, well, Matt, let's get let's get right into it. I'm interested to in what you have to say, knowing that you're a huge fan of it, so go ahead with your personal journey. Right on. Yeah, no, I, I had forgotten about that. We uh, we got the book before it had Matt Damon's face on it. We got the original yeah. uh, the original book with uh, the, the Martian. I guess with Matt Damon, it's now the Martian. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah. So so my story begins in two thousand and one, and it's the summer between freshman and sophomore year of high school. In in lowly Matt Gaylord, here I am. I'm uh, <laughs> I've I've signed up for, for my first AP class. And uh, it's AP literature nonetheless. And uh, nice. at that point, I knew I wasn't like a big book guy. But, you know, hey, eyes eyes bright. I'm ready to tackle the world. <laughs> and, uh, okay, so we got some summer reading. I'm like, oh, okay, let's do this. So first book, Walden Pond. Like, All right. <laughs> like, uh, sophomore. That's I mean, I, I can, I, I'm going to slog through this thing. I'm going to do it. And I put it down. I'm done. I'm like, you know, okay, not, not my tempo. But, hey, it is what it is. Let, let's, let's grab by this world by the haunches. Next book, The Bean Trees, which isn't even on like AP reading, I don't think. I like, read yeah. that. I had to read that in honors, honors list. Cisneros? Yeah. Is that right? Oh, bless you. Um, oh my God. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah, like same, like, look, not my tempo. Like I just, not, this is like, this is not for me, but you no, know, hey, we're getting into this. 
And then third book of the summer is Jane Eyre. And at that point, I read that book and throw a folding chair at English for the rest of my life. I'm like, this is not for me. And then promptly went in to become an engineer in an undergrad, became an engineer after undergrad, and never really read. I would I would pass time on flights for work with magazines and just not not a reader. Um, and look at the pictures. He still doesn't know how to read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, all right. And so, and so flash forward, it's, it's now 2015 and I've just graduated from business school and I've got, uh, I've got three months of just kind of play time ahead of me, uh, because I've graduated and my job starts in three months. And so my, uh, my, my wife, we just, just gotten married, um, during our second year of business school. And, and here we are, she uh, was kind enough as a graduation present to gift to me a, uh, a trip down to Charleston to see earth, wind and fire live. Oh, um, nice. hell yeah. So, yeah. So, um, awesome, awesome weekend. Like, okay, so let's make every aspect of this weekend the best it can possibly be. And so what do we need? We need some entertainment in this, uh, in this car ride from, uh, from business school down to, to Charleston. And so I go online and I'm looking for these audiobooks. So like, what's, you know, she's an engineer. I'm an engineer. I know I'm not a big double and triple meeting of every single word in the, in the book kind of guy. Uh, and so science fiction is what I'm looking for. And here comes this book, the Martian, and it's got perfect stars and it sounds awesome and the reviews talk about a lot of math which i'm like uh you know may maybe maybe not but uh but anyway I, I pulled the trigger and it was not a cheap audiobook back then either like i mean here i am multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and uh <laughs> <laughs> pulling a pulling the trigger on a 30 dollar audiobook oh my god um, i was gonna yeah. say what's another 15 yeah. but yeah shit thirty dollars yeah i mean it, i mean in retrospect it's like come on like that's ridiculous but <laughs> pull, pull the trigger on that and um yeah and so and so the voyage begins on our, our trek down to charleston and i had sheer terror for the first 10 minutes I'm like i this is a mistake like this is at the <laughs> journal are you are you what, what are what are we is this gonna be a guy alone on a planet writing in a journal about his thoughts and his philosophy in life this is just this is the the worst and so, and so let me, let me flash forward five years later and do, and do some, <laughs> some Martian math, right? So, so here's the rub. Uh, so, <laughs> That's a line from the movie. Yeah, so here's the rub. So, so that was 2015. Uh, it's 2020. So that's, that's five years. We'll, 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 we'll keep the math easy here. So five years. Conservatively, I listened to this book 300 days a year, and that's just to fall asleep. So at the end of the day, a long, a long day, whether it's, you know, my old job or my, my new job just kind of gets the juices flowing. And I, if I just sit there alone with my thoughts, I'll, I'll stay awake. So I throw this book on every night for 30 minutes to help me fall asleep. So five years. And to keep the math easy, we'll say it's 300 nights a year. I can guarantee you it's more than that on average. <laughs> and so 30 minutes per night. So so five times 300 nights. So it's 1,500 times 30. It's 45,000 45, minutes worth of listening to this book. And then I should have figured out how long the audiobook is, but yeah, the the audiobook is ten hours and like thirty minutes, I Change? think. Yeah, I, I, I listen. I listen I to audiobooks so for this time. So yeah, ten hours, thirty minutes. Ten hours. All right. So okay. So so ten hours times sixty minutes per hour. So six hundred minutes. So so I mean, this is not the easiest math, right? But forty five, forty five thousand divided by six hundred. So six goes into forty two seven times so that's so so i've, I've listened yeah. to this book over 70 times conservatively right over wow. the past five years if you, yeah. if you add up all that if you add up all that stuff and so 
the book is just is like the fact that I can do that and uh, and not grow like woefully bored of it. This kind of speaks <laughs> to uh, how enthralled I am with the the creativity mm-hmm. and then also just the notion of the book and the message is it's not uh it's nothing other than just get to work and survive, which is is kind of unlike any other book I've I've read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like a bare bones. Just like yeah, if you if you're pushed to the limits, you need to do everything possible to. Mm-hmm. survive or else yeah you're dead because mars is a place where space is a place where no one can hear you scream when you're dying <laughs> yeah so matt let me get this straight you liked it um my journey <laughs> begins with yeah no the, so i also was not a huge reader and i only became a big reader for this podcast actually I, i'm glad well, I, I like doing this podcast, but a big benefit of starting this in the first place was it, it gave me a reason to start reading all these books. And I mostly listen to them, but we we consider that reading. Some people don't, but we do. And yeah. you had recommended this book to me right before it became popular back in 2014, 2015. And I went out and I I also bought the book. I was in my junior year of college. And yeah, I was looking forward to it because I'm a fan of sci-fi. But again, like I'm such, we're such stereotypical high school guys of like, we're good at math and science and we, we read spark notes for English class. I'm sorry to all my English teachers, but that's what we did. similar AP story. Yeah. Um, about Jane Austen. And- you know, I, I feel like I always read the spark notes for class, but I, like at least I read the spark notes, right? Right. I was, I was consistent mm-hmm. in doing that. And honestly, I got by with just the spark notes when everyone else would read the book for the first half of the semester and then fizzle out from there. Unless yeah. you were me and you read the book <laughs> twice within the given window. <laughs> yeah. You are what we wish we could have been in high school. I, like I wish I had, we had the motivation to get good grades. And, and I must say as a quick aside, obviously our parents raised us Right. But a big motivating factor for me in high school, which led to me getting into school of my choice, was my two older brothers who also got straight A's or or towards the top of their class. So, Matt, I must say you motivated me throughout high school. I credit you and Tim to helping me get into BU. Go Terriers. And yet yet of the three of us, Dan and Laura, I don't even know if you know this, but uh, so Westfield High School has an award that is useless because they they give it out. (laughs) After all college decisions have been made, but they give it out and it is as written on the trophy, the most prestigious, highest honor that Westwood High can give to any one student is given once a year and that student's name is put up on a bronze tablet in the hallway, the main hallway. And wouldn't you know it, uh, my parents almost didn't even go because Dan says it's not going to happen, but Dan got the bronze tablet. And so... Oh, you I've shut heard, up, I've but heard continue. I've story and I've seen the bronze tablet and I've always been oh. very impressed. <laughs> I tell it to everyone I meet. No, uh, no I, I don't even think you were the first one to tell me that. I think it might have been your mom. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I appreciate that, Matt. But again, not to get all schmaltzy and lovey-dovey, but you, you definitely, I, I mean it, you, you definitely helped me with throughout high school and you're always a role model that I was living up to, so... Thank you again. Anytime. Uh, sorry, I farted. Uh, anyways, yeah, I started reading it again. Again, not being a reader, but 
of course, science fiction is my jam. You know that if you've listened to this podcast. I read the physical copy, the book. I, I read it very quickly, and and I remember finishing the last, the finale at a car ride with you and Heather on our way back from Boston or something like that to Otis, I think. And right. yeah, what a nail-biting finale the book has and mm-hmm. the movie too, mm-hmm. which the movie, as we'll discuss, adds some conflict to make the ending a little bit crazier. Not as believable, but certainly crazier. <laughs> and yeah, I watched the movie as soon as it came out. It went into production before the book was even published. It was one of those cases where this was kind of like a hot story going around in the publishing world. And Ridley Scott, director Ridley Scott, got his hands on this. And Drew Goddard wrote the screenplay, adapted the screenplay. And we are huge fans of Drew Goddard. Or maybe you are don't we? know. <laughs> well, when I list up, so he has written, he wrote and directed... Bad Times at El Royale, oh. which we love, which I know you you didn't like, but I, I'd give that movie another chance. And then he also wrote and directed Cabin in the Woods. Matt, I would recommend that to you. It's like a crazy satire, horror yeah. satire. No, I've seen it. It's great. Oh, yeah. So, And then he also wrote the best episodes of Lost. And then he also wrote for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but I never watched that show. No, I've never seen that either. It's acclaimed, but I've never watched it. So yeah, when I heard that Ridley Scott, a pretty solid director, although after Gladiator, which amazing movie, I know you love that movie, Matt, he had kind of a rough period where he wasn't making a lot of good movies. I mean, he would make a movie a year throughout the 2000s and 2010s, but he had kind of a drought and then... The Martian kind of propelled them back. Like he's coming off of Prometheus, which not a great movie in my opinion, but then he bounces back with The Martian. A pretty awesome movie. Yeah, saw it in theaters, loved it. Was weirded out. It won Best Comedy at the Golden Globes. And yeah, so it was it was such a weird win that the Golden Globes changed the rules, which if it's a drama that has comedic moments, it needs it still needs to be submitted to the drama category. So Mm -hmm. that the Martian was the reason for that change, because everyone was like, this is not a comedy. It's Mm -hmm. very funny, but it's not a comedy. Was it a down year in comedy that year? Did the directors choose like, hey, we our best shot in Oscar or whatever it is is going after the comedy? Yeah, it was, I think, like, Trainwreck was also out that year, and Judd Apatow was like, what the heck? I lost to the the Martian, and, you know, he's a lot of clout in Hollywood, so he was like, you need to change this. And, yeah, it, m- it must have been. I, I don't know. But the Martian, it was nominated for seven Academy Awards at the 2015 Oscars, but did not win any. Hmm. That's Ridley Scott has plenty of Oscars, but I think it should have won for visual effects at least. Well, actually, it was up. It was up against Mad Max: Fury Road. Oh, yeah, oh. There's no way. Okay, yeah. Never mind. No I way. retract my, that last <laughs> statement. Mad Max, one of the best movies ever made. I wish that was based on a book. It'd be a short book, but um, <laughs> yeah. So never mind. But I mean, we can all agree the special effects in the movie. I mean, mm-hmm. pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. I've been talking for a while. Laura, we didn't go with your journey. I'm so sorry. Oh, um, I Are you done? Like, yes. You're I'm, done. <laughs> you're I'm finally done, done flapping my mouth. All right, go ahead. <laughs> well, I don't really have a long journey with this book. The first time that I heard about it was when we went and visited Matt and Heather and they were talking about it. 
And we just never got around to reading it until we decided to start this podcast. And so the first time I read it was probably about a month ago. And it was one of those books that I was not super excited about diving into because I'm personally not a huge sci-fi fan, but I absolutely could not put this book down. It was so intense and it felt like every single time there was a glimmer of hope that something would be easy for him, for Mark, everything just went to shit. And I, it kept me on the edge of my seat. I actually, I also usually read at night to sort of shut my brain down and get me into sleep mode. But with this book, it was like, I would start reading it and then suddenly it would be like 1030 or 11. I'm like, oh shit, I really need to go to sleep because I have to work tomorrow. So I really, really enjoyed reading the book and We'll probably go into this later too, but I like the simplicity of it because it kind of goes along with this literary tradition of like man versus nature. And so the fact that it sort of follows that tradition of like Robinson Crusoe and Call of the Wild, but it's sort of brought into our modern situation with the fact that we have technology and, you know, we could communicate with this one single guy on the planet light years away, but the technology can only get him so far. That was really compelling to me. So yeah, and then I I know that I watched the movie when it came out. I can't remember if I saw it in the theater or if I just saw it after it came out to streaming, to a streaming service or something like that, but I don't remember a lot of it. So rewatching it today was really fun. I enjoyed it. I kind of I missed a couple parts that were not included in the movie that were in the book, but yeah, I had fun. I think it it was adapted really well. I think the script was really on point as far as all of the dialogue and how a lot of it is just narrated by one guy but it's really 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 funny and you just you love mark so much and so yeah those were that's kind of it that's (laughs) i think that uh that's like a brilliant observation there so if like if i'm 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 an author i'm trying to okay i'm gonna do man versus wild all right where, where am i gonna put this guy that he's like in the worst spot possible like the middle of the ocean you got gps you'll be fine like middle of the jungle same thing you can be fine the fact that he's on Mars, and even even if he had a perfectly functioning walkie-talkie, it's going to be a 22-minute round trip for exactly. that communication. So, like, if something's happening, like, you're going to have to make some decisions on your own without help of Big Brother kind of watching over your shoulder, which is exactly a pretty good situation. I totally agree, and that's really clear. They make that really clear in the movie when the team is making that round right past Mars, and. Oh, what's the what's the Hermes? guy's name? Oh. No, the one of the Thank directors. Kapoor. Kapoor. And and he has that line about they're on their own because if something happens 10 minutes from now and they need help or they need to ask a question, it's going to take 30 minutes to get to us. So, we just have to wait. And I just I love that feeling of isolation that he builds in again, a modern world where for the most part people are text messages away. It's just so it's such yeah. a great way of reimagining that man versus nature, man versus wild situation. Yeah. And it brings into perspective just how far away mm-hmm. planets are, because as an avid fan of sci-fi, you watch movies where Star Wars, for example, they zip in and out of planets at light speed. <laughs> in a couple parsecs? Yeah, in 12 parsecs. Uh, <laughs> but you kind of forget that when you watch, I mean, I watch sci-fi shows too. Ridley Scott's Raised by Wolves just came out. And that has space travel too and like, you know, interstellar travel and, you know, going through wormholes. And you just forget how long it takes even to get to something like the moon. It's it, mm-hmm. It's a long time. And 
that's an, something that I think Ad Astra did well too, which we want to talk about on this podcast is kind of a loose adaptation of Heart of Darkness. But yeah, you just forget how long it takes to travel from Earth to any planet in our solar system. And that really adds to the stakes. And yeah, he truly is alone. Everything is working against him. That's what I think the movie does really well is as soon as Mark wakes up, he has that first log into the camera where he lays down the the entire stakes. He says, if the oxygenator breaks, I'm dead. If I run out of water, I'll die of thirst. If there's a breach in the hab, I'll implode. And if none of those things happen, I'll die of starvation. Mm-hmm. So it's like, wow. And that, that's right away. That's in the first 10 minutes. And I wanted to ask you, Matt, if you think that... I think an opinion we had when watching the movie was, wow, they're actually, they're getting to this really fast. Five minutes in, the storm hits, and then it's minute seven, and Mark wakes up. And you're like, whoa, wait a second. This I know we have a lot of ground to cover, but this seems a, a little fast. Like, it felt a little rushed, yeah. And I know the book opens with Mark on Soul 7 or whatever, the crew already gone. But what did you think of the opening of this movie? Yeah, so I was so quick to get uh, you know awesome tickets to see this movie when it first came out, and I'm not <laughs> t- I'm not one of those guys that like stands in line in my uh, Boba Fett costume waiting to see a movie. <laughs> but like this is one I'm like, hey Heather, we are we are gonna go see this, and she was totally on board. So we got a nice uh, pizza downtown Davis Square and uh, ate that pizza in line at the da- the Davis uh, Square Somerville Theater and uh, and watched it. And uh, upon first watch, I'm like, you know what? I'm not a guy who uh, generally likes books over movies. You know, Jurassic Park, movie all the way. Game of Thrones, <laughs> movie all the way. Like, you have to be a bad movie for me to prefer the book over the movie. And, and so I... I've given some other sci-fi books a shot after the the Martian like Sphere and uh, and Congo and those are those are not good movies. <laughs> yeah. <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> so so I I re- in preparation for this podcast I rewatched the movie and of all places to rewatch the movie I watched it bedside as uh, as my wife was in labor with our our second kid <laughs> uh, with a little Brooklyn Bopal BB we're calling her and uh, and so BB eight I've got some. <laughs> I've got some interesting notes as uh, every once in a while I have to tend to my uh, my wife in labor. I'm like, God, I'm watching a movie here. Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, was going to make that joke. I'd be like, Heather, can you keep it down? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but I, I mean, I, I knew that there were some pretty big gaps in the book. And I knew about the, the big ending flip flop from the book to the movie. But what I, in my notes here, I have like, well, okay, they, it does pull you in right away, which is great. Because there's a, there's a lot of ground to cover. And the best way, I think, for a movie to portray camaraderie amongst a team is a bunch of dudes giving each other shit because that is exactly <laughs> what guys do once they're camaraderie. And they do that right away. I'm like, okay, these guys are bros. They're mm-hmm. on Mars digging for dirt and they're giving each other a hard time. And it's, okay, I, I get it. Like, I, I believe that these guys are tight and that one or the other will be devastated if the other if anything happens to the other one, um, which, is, which is awesome. In my notes here... I mean, you guys say it gets in quick. I'm, I'd almost say like, bang, opening shot, wind. They're struggling to get through Mars. Mm-hmm. Like you can give each other shit while getting through windstorm too. Like I maybe mm-hmm. like even just like them walking from the hab to the MAV, and they've got wind in their face, and they're giving each other a hard time, and then bang, you know. And then and now you, now you say five minutes um, right away, and you can get in, and you can potentially get some more of those arguably bigger issues that he faces on the journey to was it Acidelia, Planitia to Schiaparelli, um, right? Mm-hmm. The, the big the 3,200 kilometer journey 
from uh, from one spot to the other, where you could argue that he's in more trouble in the midst of a dust storm than mm-hmm. he is uh, in any other point in the, in the movie. And he's probably in, in just as much trouble when he flips the rover getting mm-hmm. there too. And so, you know, I think there could be some ways where they could condense stuff down. And, and so it, it, to some extent, like they're so linear with the book, even even the the text, the dialogue, as Watney's getting blown away down a hill in the storm, it's word for word, like book mm-hmm. to movie, it's like word for word. And they really stick to it. Uh, I think they could have combined a few aspects. I think one of the, in my notes here, I have, you'd lose very little if Watney went and found Pathfinder and then just through movie magic, just plug Pathfinder into the hab and bang, he's typing. No, no mm-hmm. need for the, you know, the sundial, right? To yeah, I agree. That. Yeah, just, just, just get, get, all right, there's contact, great. And so now you can get into that point where Pathfinder gets fried and now he's really on his own again. Yes, that's in my notes too. Yeah. They totally skipped him setting the drill against the table and frying his power. And I was right. like, I feel like that was a really bleak moment that yeah. made my heart sick. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I mean, little things that where they can combine that, you know, like whether you know he rolls the rover and loses Pathfinder, or the airlock pops and he just happens to land on Pathfinder, they could have condensed things down that way. But I, I feel like it was either like a we're sticking to this book word for word, or we're just gonna lop out, lop, lop out big chunks of it. So I think taking out all the risk he was in in that 3,200 kilometer journey. I mean, I, I get it. Like, right, it's a movie, so a guy driving for you know. 55 days would be would be rough on the audience but you know they could have gotten another dust storm in there mm-hmm. i was disappointed that um johansson's conversation with her father about cannibalizing the rest yes. of the crew was not in there yeah, yeah. <laughs> i have to say that was that's my favorite part of the book because i when i re-listened to the book for this podcast totally forgot about that that is the most frightening thing in the entire book the fact that if the hermes mission fails getting the food they would the rest of the crew would kill themselves just so johansson yeah being the youngest could eat just visualizing that in your head and and you know the horror for the crew but also the horror for johansson to be forced to be a cannibal in order to live like she, no other choice. I mean, and the fact that it was a reality enough for NASA to have a conversation that would green light that decision. I think that that was really emotional. And I think that there's a lot of comedic relief with Mark's dialogue because he's trying to keep his own morale up. But with that conversation, it really brings into your face like this is a really serious decision that the crew made to continue their mission when they didn't have enough supplies necessarily if they failed. Yeah. Like it just kind of made it raised the stakes of their decision, I guess is what I'm trying to say, because regardless of them leaving their family for another year and a half and all those things, like they would have to kill themselves so that one person could get back to Earth. That is freaky. Yeah. yeah, I I agree. That definitely should have been in there. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. like, why not? That would have been, I don't know, a, a two-minute scene. I know there is an extended version of this movie. It's only 10 minutes longer than the theatrical version, but I wonder we should, we yeah, should we watch, watch that, yeah, yeah. In, in the future. But yeah, I think Drew Goddard did a really great job condensing the events. And of course, some conflicts needed to be scrapped in order for it to be 
a movie, but I think this would have made a great three-part series on HBO mm-hmm. or, or Netflix. I mean, again, it only it was five years ago, so it, not a long time ago, but I feel like three-episode, four-episode miniseries are more common now than they were even a couple of years ago, so mm-hmm. maybe it was just adapted too early, but... Well, if we say that we want it remade as a three-part series, I think that leads really nicely into a conversation that Matt prepped us for because you asked us to come up with a name of an actor who would have been perfectly cast to play Mark Watney. Yeah. So we both have guesses. I don't think mine is correct, but... Oh, I know it. Oh, you do. You know. Oh, yeah, I okay. know it. Well, so it's just just yeah. you. So. Yeah, without, without me even having told Dan already, he would already know it. <sighs> okay. Well, that's it's not totally fair because I'm not as entrenched in like movie and movies and actors and stuff, but my guess was Oscar Isaacs. Isaac? Isaac? Yeah, Poe Dameron in Star Wars, that guy. Oh. Ah. Interesting. Uh no, it's not that it's not that guy. I just I feel like so I'm as big of a Matt Damon fan as the next Bostonian guy. Uh <laughs> but I just I'm not I'm not buying the comedy, you know, like Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not buying the um, in-your-face Neil Armstrong, and I'm not buying the, like, I'm the best botanist on this planet. It, it felt mm-hmm. forced. Him uh, dancing in the rover was uh, was kind of cringeworthy as he's dancing <laughs> to some disco song. Like, you know, and then and then I feel like there was a lot of, um, especially after the crew took off in MAV and left Watney alone, there was a lot of, just, like, silence of just him walking around and thinking about, what am I going to do? He didn't say anything. He just inspected things. Like, wouldn't that be awesome? It's like a really funny dude. Like, for the first day or two, when you're like, okay, I've got two weeks to live. Like, what shenanigans am I going to get into right now, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that could be a pretty funny scene. And I just feel like the witty, charismatic uh, Ryan Reynolds would have absolutely crushed this role. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been perfect? Yeah, I completely agree. I totally agree. That totally makes sense. It's funny. A couple weeks ago, we watched The Proposal, which... Ryan Reynolds is in and yeah. Sandra Bullock, that rom-com. Laura showed that to me. Funny movie. <laughs> it's <laughs> silly. Wonderful. No, it's good. Silly, silly little movie. And and then I proposed that question to Laura right after the movie, trying to like tee you up so you could Oh the oh <laughs> so you could impress Matt, but you biffed it. No. I missed <laughs> yeah, I missed that opportunity. Oh well. No, that's a really good point. I I think that one of the things I loved about the book is like you were talking about the structure of it is like a journal and he's you know, recording all of these days. And I think that actually made the book really cinematic. I think that really lent, like the way that they cut between souls and the way that he would say like, okay, I'm going to burn some hydrogen. Let's see how this works. And then it would like cut to later that day. And he'd be like, well, I just fucked up. I blew myself up. Like that's really cinematic. And you can almost see in your head, the explosion happen, even though it's not written. You can literally see it happen in that space where there's not writing. You can just see him sort of like waking up and being like, oh, <laughs> I didn't do that right. So yeah, I think that that, that structure was like surprisingly yeah. delightful. And I think they did that well in yeah. the... But yeah, I there were actually a couple acting decisions that I thought were a little bit silly. And I actually, I felt like I was giggling a few times, even though some scenes are supposed to be like slightly serious. Like I was really excited when I saw Donald Glover come on screen and I was yeah, like, oh, I totally know. forgot that he was in this. But then the way that he acted, I was like, what is he doing? <laughs> he, he looked the way that it, I don't know, Matt, if you've seen Community, but 
the yes. way that yeah matt introduced me to community. oh okay so there's this episode where abed and troy switch personalities and every single thing that donald glover was doing in the movie i was like he's acting like abed and it's really strange and i don't understand why he's acting like that like if he's supposed to be a nerd that's fine but he went in this weird kind of like... It's it's weird, I think. Yeah, it's not explicitly said in the book that Rich Purnell might be autistic or... Like, he said he has a problem with people. Yeah, I think but with Venkava with Kapoor, he's like, look, I, I'm not good with people. So I, I think it's... The book makes it very clear that he's got... I mean, I'm not a physician, but like Asperger's or something that's going on mm-hmm. there. And I think he tried... It's, Donald Glover did do Abed for this role, including the yeah. finger, the finger pointing and the not yes. making eye contact. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah um, and the way he kind of kept his hands really close to his chest like this, like any kind of gesture like this. Right. And the thing is, Donald Glover is such a star. And if you've watched Community, you think of him in that role. And you also think of his rap persona. And to see him doing Abed, I mean, he wasn't trying to be disrespectful, but it just, it just didn't, it seemed a little off and which... I mean, again, Donald Glover, one of the most talented people I love him. Uh, like on the planet. I was but, just, I was bummed with his performance in this movie. Yeah, a little weird. And I think, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't on set, but Ridley Scott, again, this guy makes a movie a year and he makes like $150 movies. Like the, the budget for this $150 was- $150 movies? Uh, yeah, for $150. dollars <laughs> yeah, uh, 150 million, excuse right. me. Uh, the budget for The Martian was $108 million. It actually came under budget because they filmed it in 72 days, which is for a big budget movie. Big big budget movies usually take like three to six months. But Ridley Scott, he goes at an economic pace. He's known for doing like one or two takes and moving on. So maybe that explains some of the weird, some of the line deliveries. I'm not, this movie is certainly not poorly acted. No, 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 yeah. Yeah, some of the stuff is like, Maybe maybe do another take, <laughs> like yeah. like get a better reaction. See, having seen the uh, the promos for this, I thought for sure Donald Glover would be Rick Martinez, given that like he's like the comedic relief guy. Mm-hmm. But uh, but no, they they took a they took a risk. Now the the trivia there is that when he falls on paper and gets up and keeps going, that was not scripted. He actually fell oh, on really? loose papers and just like kept going. And that was arguably his best moment in the movie. Yeah. I agree. I <laughs> laughed out loud at that moment actually. Yeah, he's so funny. But like, yeah, just I don't know the way he sort of putters around. It seemed very forced today. Yeah. But yeah, in the movie in that scene, you can see the camera kind of adjust because, you know, the motion was supposed to be he walks across the room, but cool. of course he has that unscripted yeah. fall. Yeah, that's so cool. But we were talking about the script and the changes that they were making. Even though I loved the journal format of the book, I think a great change Drew Goddard made was when the airlock broke, Mark doesn't do an audio log. He just gets straight to fixing his Mm -hmm. mask. And it's really tense because you hear his oxygen slowly dwindle down and you hear the air rushing out and he's rushing to put the duct tape on his helmet before he suffocates. And I think one of the few points in the book where I'm like, okay, this is a little ridiculous was when the airlock breaks and he's like taking a second to do an audio log. Mm. And even if you're like doing work, trying to fix your helmet as you're talking, you're wasting energy and oxygen there. Mm -hmm. Just stop talking. It doesn't make sense for you to talk to us while you're 
racing against the clock to not suffocate. So that's just a small change that I Actually, liked. in particular, I really loved that scene because when he's struggling with the duct tape, you'll notice that part of it folds over and he's trying to put it on his helmet, but it doesn't stick because it's like stuck to itself. And that was really nerve wracking for me as a watcher because every single person on earth has probably used duct tape. And that's happened to somebody where you're, or tape in general, right? Like you're trying to get tape over something and it like folds over and you're like, fuck, I have to rip another piece. And like the fact that that was literally the only thing between him and death was that little piece of duct tape that flipped over on itself. He was like, fuck. And he like rips another one. I thought that was just a great way of visualizing the, you know, the stakes that he's struggling against. Do you think that was done on purpose? I, I feel like that just happened. And he I don't think it. so. Right. Yeah. 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 It, it <laughs> certainly looks because he's doing the motion to put it on. Yeah. And, and he misses it with his bottom hand. hand. Right. Yeah. And I think that speaks to a larger thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit too, which we discussed a little bit in the oil episode that we recorded. The visualization of stuff that I wouldn't necessarily know about, like, because I've never gone through an astronaut program and I've never been to space. Like, I really enjoyed visualizing those things that he was struggling against. And even though he talks a lot about the math and all of the equations that he has to do, I just, I loved watching all of that come into fruition, you know, with the water dripping when he finally got the hydrogen burner done correctly and all of the water that was collecting on the the tarp that he set up, all that stuff. Like I really enjoyed watching that happen in front of me rather than sort of trying to visualize it myself. I think the movie did that really well. So I had that written down as a uh, very cool scene of the time lapse of the soil becoming hydrated with water. Yeah. And then uh, the movie did a great job, better than the book, of Damon walking in just like saying hey there to a little uh, potato leaf yeah it was very, it was very monumentous as opposed to the movie which is kind of like an offhanded comment of like good news like sprouts form today yeah so that was, that was, i think that was good on the movie i totally agree it was very tender and it also sort of reminded you how alone he was because he can't really speak to anyone but himself but that's the only living thing that's there with him and the fact that he sort of was talking to it was very emotional and the book doesn't even cover the moment after Mark finds out that the food probe blew up. The chapter just ends with Mark saying, how, how did it go? But then the movie shows his reaction of him sitting out overlooking the desolate, empty Martian vista, truly soaking it in, showing you how alone he is, as we've talked about before, and of him having that monologue of him saying, tell my parents that. I love them. And I think that that was a great moment, a great addition by Drew mm -hmm. Goddard. I mean, man, the, the visuals in this movie, I mean, truly are. It sucks that it came out the year Mad Max came out because, I mean, it like it's incredible. It, mm -hmm. And they shot in Jordan, the desert of Jordan, which coincidentally is where the new Dune movie shot, nice. which we can't stop talking about. I know, mm -hmm. Matt, you listened to the Dune episode. Yeah, Dune it got pushed whole, a whole year. We'll wait for it. We'll, we'll wait for you. But yeah, I think the Jordan Desert is such a great stand-in for Mars because... It, the color was spot on. Yeah, since the atmosphere, the Martian atmosphere is so thin at night and at, at sunsets, it looks blue or purple because it's just, there's nothing that's come straight through. So I think, yeah, the visuals in this movie were pretty... Mm -hmm pretty great one of the scenes where the movie really uh 
biffed it was the revelation to NASA that Watney was alive. In the book, having listened to it yes. tens of times, I still get goosebumps as, what's her name, Mindy Park is is walking Vincent through like step by step, like this is what I found and like everyone knows where we're going with this, but I still get goosebumps as Vincent steps back and says, oh, oh my God. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas in the movie, it's just like, emergency, I need Vincent. Oh, everyone's here. Walk me through it. Like how, yeah. how, do you, how do you know? How do you know he's here? Yes. But let, let me let me end on a positive. Jeff Daniels crushes this role. I love him in this movie. It's great. I laughed out loud when you know Rich Purnell was like, "Oh, oh I'm sorry. Who are you?" Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Teddy Sanders, director of NASA. <laughs> director yeah. of NASA. Cool. Uh, so yeah, that, that was a great moment. I agree. Jeff Daniels. Just a gifted comedic actor. I mean, Dumb and Dumber, one of the funniest movies ever made. But he's also great in these serious roles. And and even small line readings when he's giving the press conference and one of the reporters are like, so are you going to resign? And he's he kind of gives like a, oh, no. like no, And it's a very nuanced, like a simple line. But it would have been easy to phone in this performance, you know, as the kind of the curmudgeon NASA director who's like, we're not going to take a risk to save this guy. And mm-hmm. that transitions into a great point. I love the, the ethical question that the movie presents, similar to the trolley problem. And I guess the book takes the side of Immanuel Kant of saying that the Ooh, yeah, that the Mr. Uh, philosophy 101 here. Yeah, that I took took a philosophy class in BU, got a B plus <laughs> um, that every individual, their lives are equal to themselves, meaning so in the trolley problem, you can either have a train run over five people or you can switch it and it only kill one person, but you'll live with the knowledge that you were the reason that you killed that other person. So it's it's a great ethical problem that this movie presents is do you want to have a low risk of killing six people or a very high risk of killing one person Mm -hmm. and honestly i go back and forth obviously this is in the near future so we couldn't do that problem now and think about it in modern terms but that part of the novel is very compelling of the crew coming together and and realizing that you can save mark but if anything goes wrong for us too we're all dead Well, I think what's interesting, the thing that the book supplies is the additional option of asking the people, would you mind risking your life to go save this other person? So what is uh, Sean Bean's character's name? I'm sorry. Okay. So I think Mitch has a really valid point where he's like, we're dealing with adults and I think we need to reach out to them and ask if they are willing to add the risk to their life to lower the risk of Mark dying. So I I like that addition because the trolley scenario is so unrealistic that sometimes in a lot of philosophy classes, it just seems like a moot point because you're never going to be in that situation. So I appreciate that they make this a more realistic scenario by reaching out to those group members and saying like, would you like to risk your life to try and have a chance at saving Mark? Yeah. I think that's like a mature response to that. Yeah. What do you think of the casting of the Hermes crew, Matt? Uh, let me go through it. So, so <laughs> Melissa, Commander Lewis, Melissa Lewis. I, so a task of mine while watching the movie is, okay, if I had, a, if I had to recast this movie, how, who would I, who would I do? Melissa Lewis, I, that one's a toughie. Like I, I think that one was hit on the head. It's very hard for anyone to uh, 
to fill that role. She was perfect. Michael Pena is Rick Martinez. I, I think, I mean, sure, he, he's a he's a comedic guy, but I think Donald Glover could have been a, a good replacement for him. You mentioned Mitch's name. I feel like Dr. Cox from Scrubs would have been an awesome oh. man. Yeah. yeah, John C. McGinley. Yeah. Loud, name. opinionated. He would have been great. Another name I had written down was, uh, so so Bruce, uh, the JPL guy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> He he had he had a few comedic attempts. Some of them landed. One was um, was like my my brother or my uncle Charlie over in China. <laughs> that was good. I I I, uh, I mean I am a Community fan, but I feel like I feel like Chang from uh, Community could have rocked. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. He could rock any role he's yeah. given. Honestly, this... he's such a funny guy. Yeah, I gotta say the one disappointing role, the other disappointing role in the movie. I'm a huge. Kristen Wiig, Bridesmaids fan. Yeah. But it is like not not for her. Like not that wasn't I, I wasn't feeling it. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, no no one has ever no one has accused me ever of being a, a social justice warrior. But isn't it interesting that the head of NASA's public affairs is really never shown in the movie addressing the press or the public? It's always like her sitting next to Teddy yeah. or Binkett, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's so <laughs> really that's point. so true. But, but um but for her, I just, I just didn't, I didn't believe it. Uh, and for her, I don't know any of these actresses' names, but um, the boss from Workaholics. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, like the the kind of sassy, you know, doesn't take, doesn't put up with any BS type deal. You know who I actually thought would be really good? I, this is kind of an obscure actress, but I really, really like her. Her name is Patricia Belcher. And she plays the lawyer or the, maybe she's a district attorney, but she's a, She's an attorney in Bones. I don't know if you guys have ever watched that show. Um, she's in a lot though. She's like she's in a lot of like fairly small roles, but she's incredible. She's a great actress, and she has that bravado and that way of pushing back at people because she knows what her agenda is, you know, and like she knows what she is going to get shit for if she doesn't come through on certain things. And so I thought she would be really good. I again, I don't know if you guys are familiar with her, but she's a great actress, and that's who I sort of visualized in that role when I was reading the book. Yeah, the rest of the Hermes crew, I thought was you know. Johansson and Beck and Vogel, I thought that, I mean, they're not huge roles and they were filled appropriately, which is good. One question I had written down for uh, both of you as I was watching the movie was, I feel like I already have the answer to this, but would you have informed the crew in the same way that Bankett did not want to inform the crew and Teddy did want to inform the crew even before a viable solution was at hand? You know, I want to sit here and say, yes, I, I would inform them simply because in the book and movie, everyone survived. But to be quite honest, I don't know. I'm not saying that I'm taking Teddy's position and saying it's much safer for the crew to just come back. Like, don't tell them. But see, it's the trolley problem all over again. (laughs) I don't know. What what would you say? No, it's a really good question because I feel like it's presented in a way that makes you understand why Teddy is the head of NASA. Like, it's a tough call. And I think coming from his analytical perspective, it probably is the best choice not to let them know. 
However, I think on an emotional level, if you think about how they could be potentially depressed because they have left Mark behind and they think he's dead, I think that might actually make a bigger difference in their reaction times or whatever that Teddy was concerned about. So if you tell them sooner, I feel like their morale would have bounced back a little quicker. And maybe they would have been more excited about their day-to-day activities, stuff like that. So I would probably make the call of tell them as soon as possible because I just think the morale boost would be a bigger deal than analyzing whether or not their focus would be. But the reason why this is such a compelling question is that you need a great commander, right, for your team. Mm -hmm. And Commander Lewis had to live with the fact that it was her decision to leave Mark Mm -hmm. behind. So you have a depressed commander, Mm -hmm. then maybe... Who's questioning whether or not she made the right call. Yeah, uh, I feel like such a square, but I think think I'm siding with Teddy. But I'm happy, (laughs) listen, I'm happy that they, (laughs) the Hermes crew did what they did. And that's what makes it a great story. Yeah, it, it is. It is what it is. I, I got to say, like, I would not tell them if there was no hope of getting mm-hmm. like if there's a plan, like, sure, we'll bring you in the plan and the more heads, the better. But um, if there's no hope yet or no plan, then it's all downside. And like the only reason to tell them at that point would be to save NASA administrative work to like filter out their personal messages before they were uploaded to them. Like that's the only downside I can see like mm. from a rational perspective um, emotionally I get it but uh, I think from a you know what good is that going to do telling them if there's no no hope of uh, or no plan to get them back yeah yeah that would definitely bring morale down even more <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> I understand waiting till they had a viable plan so then the flip side of that question is uh, so then they do tell them right and Mark says well well sorry I'm getting ahead of myself so but but so Mark gets in contact with NASA and he's like, what do uh, what the crew say when I when they found out I was alive? And then, you know, Venkat has that line, we haven't told him you're alive yet. And then in the book, Mark goes off and drops some F-bombs, you know, what the F, you know, tell him I'm alive, what the F is wrong with you. And then, uh, and then they, you know, please watch your language. Everything you say is being broadcast live around <laughs> the world. And then here's the question to you guys is like, would you go with the boobies line or was that a missed opportunity for a better joke or something else? I think it's two great jokes. I got to say after that, you know, Mark goes off and in silent, they don't show what he says. The conversation that Teddy has on the phone in the scene right after that yeah. saying like, yes, I'm sure he didn't mean that. Okay. Bye, Mr. President. <laughs> I thought that is that we both laughed out loud yeah. and yeah. In, would... in the movie, they, the movie, they don't say anything. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah. Which, and so it kind of, it's up to you to figure out what he's saying. But I wonder, like, if I wonder if that was the right way to go, or was that a missed opportunity for some like really punchy joke to get you laughing? Well, I think it's a good question because I was also surprised that they didn't use a lot of stronger language because it's all over the book. And I asked, I made a comment to Danny about that. And he was like, oh, well, they did that for ratings because they wanted to rate it as PG-13 rather than R. And you can only say fuck twice in a PG-13 rated movie. Whereas if you go for R, you can say it, I guess, as many times as you want. And so it just kind of makes me wonder in that moment whether they could have had a punchier joke, but they decided to scale it back. And I think it worked for perhaps a younger audience and that's fine. But I think for 
adults who have also read read the book, it felt a little bit like a letdown. Yeah. Because it was a funny joke in the book. Like, it was really funny. Sure. It was yeah. a good line. I, I get why they did it because it's a weird, very weird rule that the MPAA has is that, you know, you can say shit and, and bitch all you want and you can be PG-13, but if you say more than two F-bombs, it's an R rating. And I think it would have been a shame for this movie to be... Because right, this movie yeah. made $600 million off of a $100 million budget. So this was a huge hit. Do you know how much of that was in the U.S.? Um, oh, good question. I don't. Because it was like... Andy Weir was ahead of his time by making China to be the uh, the savior, right? From a yeah. business decision? For sure. It's really smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this movie was a smash hit. And... Obviously, there are R-rated movies that are smash hits, but it's so much harder to make your money back yeah. when Just you're rated R. Because the demographics R. that won't be able to go. Yeah, I mean, like freaking Deadpool and Deadpool Two. Speaking of Ryan Reynolds, those are like the highest grossing R-rated movies mm-hmm. next to Passion of the Christ. And you know, <laughs> it's so still funny. it still doesn't even come close to the amount of money that a PG-13 movie could make. Sure. So, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It certainly is disappointing. And I think. But is that even a PG-13 joke? Right, like if that that is th- that's a like PG thirteen joke, but I was in. speaking more to the overall sure. language. Yeah. Sure, but I feel but, like they uh, could have made that joke in the movie and still had a PG thirteen. Yeah, the movie did turn that around to one extent, which I thought was pretty funny. Of uh, Becky Kapoor saying, "Yeah, you know, our botanists are begrudgingly admitting that Watney's doing a good job because every time they tell him to do something, he tells them to go have sex with themselves." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a pretty a pretty good way of delivering that line in a uh, PG-13 way. Mm. Yeah. I think Drew Goddard owes, obviously, his whole script to Andy Weir. And Drew Goddard was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. He lost to, I think, the guy who wrote Spotlight. That won the Best Picture that year. But he does have some really great additions. Like, some of the comedy is forced. But another time when I laughed out loud was in the beginning... Uh, when he's listening to turn the beat around and he's just like, no, I will not turn the beat around. I refuse to. I think that that was funny. And the best line in the movie, in my opinion, is a Drew Goddard addition is was the in the face of overwhelming odds. I'm left with only one option. I'm going to have to science the shit out of this. And yeah, I, I l- love that line. Another line, Matt, maybe you can tell me if it's in the book or not. I don't remember it being in the book. But I loved when he was going through Johansson's stuff and her computer to find the decimal. The ASCII key. Yeah. And he said something like, Jesus, your laptop is a Smithsonian of loneliness. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. And I don't remember it being in the book. But when he said that, I was like, that's hilarious. Uh, that, I mean, he definitely gave her a hard time for being a nerd in the book. But that that line wasn't delivered. However... My favorite line for the book was not in the movie, which was when they realize he's alone up there and alive and kicking and like, well, Jesus Christ, like, what can we do? Like, he's alone by himself. There's no way we can talk to him. He has no idea that we know he's alive. Like, what does that do to a man's psyche? Like, what is he even thinking about right now? And in the book, they're like, they flip to him and he's like, Aquaman can speak to whales, but they're mammals. That makes no sense. It's not in the movie. That was great. Yeah, that's a really good line. That's that's again, that sort of goes back to how cinematic I think the book is, the writing is, because you can like visualize a movie cutting like that and making yeah. that joke just with the juxtaposition of what they're talking about and then what the Martians like. He's not thinking 
of philosophy and he's not like thinking about the shortness of life or the nature of loneliness or anything like this. Like he's just thinking about Aquaman. Yeah, I have to agree. That was certainly a missed opportunity. But being cinematic, that ties nicely into my question about the whole climax of the movie. And as much as I love both the book and the movie, I think the movie does cross into that territory of, okay, maybe this is a little far-fetched. And having just read the book, you can tell that, or at least in my opinion, they're really stretching the conflict as, as far as it can go to really milk it, to milk <laughs> how, how tense it is. And it was tense. We were sitting there, our palms were sweaty, mm-hmm. knees weak, mom spaghetti, uh, Eminem. Uh, <laughs> Do you know that line? Yeah, Never mind. I do know that uh, line, okay. but only from like... Uh, lose yourself in... Um, so, <laughs> Matt, what do you think about the movie's granted exciting, pulse-pounding ending, but of it being changed from the book? Yeah, so I, I got to say, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of what they did, but I also understand why they did it, right? For to to bring in that $600 million, you got to have something a bit more harrowing than, uh, you know, Beck just kind of clipping in and getting him out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know... I, you know, they, they did make the comment like, yeah, he, he pulled, what was it, like 12 Gs. And so he's got yeah. some broken ribs. And so with broken ribs, you're not going to control, you know, yeah. that kind of uh, space flight. Um, there's probably some other things that they could have done to make it a bit more harrowing without relying on the uh, the Iron Man. You know, <laughs> I thought like, honestly, in the in the, uh, in the movie, I already knew how it ends. But in the movie, like my most harrowing uh, scene towards the end was uh, Beck climbing across the hull. To get back from yeah. like, oh, like he's not clipped in anything, man. And they're moving along. Yeah, he just like, jumps from from spot to spot. They could have made that more uh, harrowing. Also, they they could have just instead of doing the Iron Man scene, like I feel like the timing of the ending was very. Uh, everything was kind of like, yeah, it was up to the minute, but it was like kind of on time. And so they could have like really uh, made them like struggle to beat the clock to get mm-hmm. get him down there because I think they're like everything was just like listlessly gliding through the hallways. Mm-hmm. And uh, to sum that up, I feel like they, they had so much time that Vogel put a warning beeps on the bomb that he made in two seconds, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, like maybe just like like a more of a haphazard bomb that maybe does more damage than uh, mm-hmm. more damage than it should have done. Um, and then the final comment that I'll make is that like, so I, I, it's Hollywood. I get it. You got to kind of make flip it, flip the script and make uh, make Lewis the savior, right? So woman commander makes up for a mistake that really wasn't her mistake. Mm-hmm. In reality, like if she was the best person to go get Watney, then she should have been the best person to go get Watney from the beginning. It shouldn't have been like a stand aside, I'm going to go get him. Right. Yeah. But again, it's Hollywood, so I get it. The only other thing I'll say, and this is before the ending, the whole Blackbeard dialogue makes no sense in the movie, right? Because he's in contact with NASA the whole time. And so they give him explicit permission to go get the MAV. Yeah. Right? So it's like, I, 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 it's a, it, it is a great line, and I applaud you for keeping it in there. But if you break it down, it, it doesn't work. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's something I didn't even think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. I think they should have had the rover crash like it does in the book. So he's racing to get to Ares 4. Mm-hmm. And he like gets to the site a couple days late. So he's racing to modify the MAV as they're approaching. Like th- that would be a yeah. pretty organic way to add it. And it, it was pretty funny, too, when he does the Iron Man thing. He's, like, f- flying all yeah. over the place. You're like, oh, Jesus. Like, how could <laughs> how could anyone control that? It, yeah. It reminded me of the movie Gravity, which is a, an acclaimed movie, but I, I have a hot take and where I, I don't like that movie because I think it's just so 
improbable and it's just Sandra Bullock flying through space and magically going to another satellite. Anyways, this is not the Gravity podcast. This is <laughs> The Martian. Yeah. I the, the movie the the movie was really good about keeping with the book and like keeping it science based. Mm-hmm. And they even the the movie even made fun of itself when there's that line as he's staring at the MAV before he gets there like so, physicists don't use the word fast, right? So the fact that they're telling me they'll be the fastest man in space just means they're trying to get me to do something crazy, which is like, yeah. which is hilarious. That was, that was a good line. Yeah. Uh, but them relying on the Iron Man, I just, they, they should have made that joke as the book did, but I feel like there's other ways to build tension and keep true to the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that was the one comment that I'll leave as my last thought. I really, really, really enjoyed how they discussed the math and the physics in the book. Because it kind of goes back to that whole thing about visualizing things like those are only experiments that I did in my chem lab. And so it was really fun to watch that be applied in the physical world, you know, and you your experiments don't go well, right? And that's why you write lab reports. And that's why you have a hypothesis and you run your experiment. But you also have to write your conclusions paragraph and you have to write your results and you have to go through like, why didn't this work? And what didn't I account for? And Why didn't I get the yield that I thought I was going to get when I did the math the first time? Like, I really, really enjoyed all of that. And I know it was difficult or like you were talking about earlier, they might not have made as much money if they went super deep into those details (laughs) in the movie. Like, I understand that. But I just thought that they were so good about talking about those things with the potatoes and stuff like that, that it actually kind of bugged me at the end, like you were saying, that they actually did end up going with the Iron Man situation because I was like, you're supposed to ground it in the science. And that yeah. was such a risky move. Like you can, I know it builds tension because you know that he can't control the whole, but I was like, there's got to be a better way. Like you were talking about when, what's his name? Sebastian, the Back. winter soldier. Back. Yeah, winter Back. soldier. Yeah. When he's sort of jumping between bits and pieces on the spacecraft and he's not tethered to anything. Like that to me felt realistic and the stakes were super high because all he has is like he's got these gloved hands that he can't really use to grip. So he's sort of grasping at things with his entire arms and like that's legitimately scary. But then it was almost comical when Mark was using the thruster thing in his yeah. hand. I was like, uh, could have been, could have thought a little bit more about that and made it a little more realistic. So yeah, that's that's a good overall kind of like it shows my kind of feeling of why the book succeeds over the movie is that the stakes. We keep on saying the stakes. The, the stakes couldn't be higher because anything could kill Mark. Mm-hmm. But then you have on the flip side, it's really satisfying to see him do these science experiments and to go through the numbers. I think there's that one scene where he he's talking about how much food he needs to to grow and how much how many days he has until the Aries 4 comes. Mm-hmm. He's like the, let's do the math. I mean, that's really fun. Yeah. It reminds me this is crazy that I'm linking these two movies. But The Wolf of Wall Street <laughs> with Leonardo DiCaprio. There's a couple scenes where he's explaining the stock stock market mm-hmm. and then he stops and says, what am I doing? You you don't want to hear this. And I was watching that movie. I'm like, but I do want to hear this. Like, <laughs> I, I do want you to explain it. Mm. It's interesting 
to explain the math if that math leads to something. And mm-hmm. in The Wolf of Wall Street, you know, it was these big billions of dollars economic gain. Mm-hmm. In this movie, it's Mark's literal survival. Yeah. So, well, even hearing about him calculating the calories that he's going to need. Yeah. And he realizes he's going to need X amount of potatoes. And he's like, well, that means I need X amount of gallons of water. And I don't have X amount gallons of water. So I need to create that. And yeah, like that step-by-step process, again, it's just like so interesting to hear experts talking about those things that I would never be able to do. So yeah, it's just, it's such a fun exercise and I just, I'm absolutely thrilled by the book, but I I agree. I think the book does a little bit better job. I try not to always say that the book is better than the movie, but in this case. We're not, yeah. In this case, it's it's tough to pick because they're both great, but yeah. The book. Uh, the book has an edge. I'm sure you agree, right, Matt? I would agree. Yeah, I, I think uh, one thing the movie has that the book doesn't is a great line at the very end where Watney's addressing the class and just saying, look, you just begin. You just mm-hmm. one problem after the other. And like that's why I like this book and why I think a lot of engineers would like this book is just like you take this monumental task, like, good Lord, how am I going to do that? You break it down into small tasks, you get small wins, you get momentum, and you mm-hmm. just begin, you just begin solving things. And like that is exactly how you should go through life. Of you know, Everyone thinks they can do more than they can do in, in one year, but everyone underestimates what they can do in five or 10 years. And so if you just begin and just go step by step through it, then I think that makes for a good story. It builds momentum on itself. And I, I think with the movie, the way the movie plays out, like at, by the end, the audience, unless you really hate math, you shouldn't be too... Uh, bored of it right they they do a great job of visualizing using atmosphere to slow down the hermes right like that was an awesome scene and so like i get it like they they did a bunch of math like like how they're gonna have a x number of cubic feet of air and it'll slow down by x number of kilometers per second and then they show it and like oh wow like i kind of understand you know Mm -hmm. you know astrodynamics now which is Mm -hmm. awesome yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, no, I I was going to say, I really love that line at the end that's not in the book where he says, you solve one problem and then you solve the next. And then if you do everything and keep solving things, you'll get to come home. And I just love the way that wrapped up the movie because, you know, while the stakes aren't usually that high, you're right. Like as long as you can keep breaking steps down further and further and you gain momentum by having those little wins, your tasks will eventually lead to a big win. So yeah, I, yeah, I loved the way that they sort of wrapped up the story or the message of the movie in that way. Yeah. And that, that message, I mean, it's universal. That even applies to this podcast. Sure does. We, we <laughs> had wanted to do this for so long and we were saying, okay, we're going to get stuff ready and then we're going we to do it on this microphone date and, and do a microphone <laughs> and, oh, we need to start reading. And you would blink and a month would go by and Mm -hmm. another month would go by. And honestly, it was about six months before when we originally were ready. It took like a half a year to really start this. And the pandemic is an awful situation. I'm not making light of it. But one of the things that it afforded us is extra time to kickstart this. Mm -hmm. And once we began, it dawned on us like we could have done, we could be on episode 20 now. Like, why are we just starting now? And so that's a good motivating factor It applies to all fields, all professions too. I mean, that's the first thing I tell people when they want to come to LA to Mm. be in the film industry. I'm like, well, you got to... For, you got to show up. And that's what any, I mean, I'm stealing that from other directors or other people who I've read in books or seen interviews. It, it's very cliche to say, but you just got to show up 
You just got to start working one problem at a time mm-hmm. and you'll be rich like we are. No, we're not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Last question for me. Yeah, sure. Is, uh, we, we talked about the uh, the series remake potential this thing, but mm-hmm. if you had to make a, uh, a sequel to this, what would that entail? That's a good question. Ooh. We should start asking that more often. On the spot thinking, I think it should be decades in the future. So Mars is like Colonized. starting to be colonized. It's kind of a metaphor. It would be a metaphor for two societies with different languages coming together, you know, but obviously it's not a smooth transition. Like there'll be some sort of war or some sort of conflict, but it would be grounded in reality. So like communication problems or trading problems, there'd be some conflict where Mars is just now being colonized, but due to differences in culture, there are roadblocks And, you know, the overall message is that we're all human, right? Even on Mars, we're human. And we need to come together to put aside our differences to create like a fluid society. I love it. Just just throw in a uh, half-naked sting coming out of a sauna and you got a movie. Hell yeah. (laughs) He's more than half-naked. He's like 98% naked. Yeah. If you zoom in, (laughs) I bet you could (laughs) see something. Do you have any any thoughts there? Uh, that's it's a good question. I I feel like I'm not as well versed in the tropes of science fiction. Yeah, Matt, you basically just called me out. I, I just pitched Dune, basically. <laughs> but, but yeah. Um, what Matt, if you have some ideas, why don't you talk and I'll yeah, continue so to I, think. Yeah, uh, so I asked that question and immediately had a breakout of cold sweat, realizing I didn't have an answer to it. But my <laughs> my, uh, my off the cuff, off color response would be. Uh, so the last scene of the of, in amongst the last scenes in the movie is uh, is Ares Five taken off right, and so they've got mm-hmm. the the American crew and they've got the astronaut. And so the in the sequel, the astronaut is a saboteur who tries to uh, attempt to steal oh. Hermes out from under its crew. But it's it's pretty obvious, right? You can't just steal Hermes from you know an international syndicate. So they got to use some like ominous, almost like a an ominous virus that they blame on like space bats. Right. Whoa. <laughs> and the crew has to fight for their lives against this uh, the saboteur who's trying to uh, to steal Hermes out from underneath them. No, I like using the next launch as a starting point for the next movie. So maybe the sequel is the Hermes six or Aries. Well, Aries. Sorry. Four. Aries four. So the Aries four takes off, and gosh. I don't know. My storyline is going to be like I, I have no ideas. I just hey, like that it's as a fine. Again, point. I I pitch Dune. So, well, I feel like it would just be too easy for them to have a communication problem, and Mark Watney comes back and you know walks everyone through the steps of how to get them back. So I don't know. I feel like that would be a lame sequel. So Mark gets abandoned again. <laughs> the Martian, and then the opening scene, he's he, just like, not this again. <laughs> All right. I I just don't have a good answer, so I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to defer. Yeah, it's tough. This is why we aren't screenwriters (laughs) (laughs) or authors. Yeah. No, that's that's a good that's a good question. Viewers, listen, viewers, listeners, I invite you to comment in your ideas. Yeah, I'm still thinking. It's going to bother me now that I don't have an idea. I'm going to be thinking about it. You've done it now. (laughs) 
it's going to be like 3 a.m. I'm going to get up to pee. And Lauren's just like, I've got, got it. it. <laughs> Martian worms. Uh, <laughs> there's these big worms and they're on my... Yeah. You're thinking of Dune again. Oh, shoot. <laughs> well. I have an idea for a movie. <laughs> okay, so I think this would be really interesting. It would be tragic. But this is what I think. I think maybe Ares 4 takes off and somehow something goes wrong and they get off course and they decide to use the entire mission to document as far as they can get before they die. <laughs> but like nobody's gone as far as they'll end up getting in space. And so even though everyone in the crew dies, they're able to send data back from like further than any human has ever gotten in the solar system. Great idea. I came up with another one. Okay. You ready for this? Oh, Matt, you've done this now. This episode's <laughs> going to be two hours. So everyone knows that there's ice caps in Mars, right? Yep. Okay. So, and there's evidence that at one point there were rivers and oceans hmm. in Mars. It hasn't been confirmed, though. So what you can do, this is going to be completely different than the first Martian. You can have it be the whole mission take place on these ice caps and whether they discover water or not is up in the air. So it's, it's like a mountain movie, something like Touching the Void or like an extreme snow movie, but you have the added layer of it's in space. So it can be like a search for life on Mars and perhaps, perhaps they find life no, uh, I, not not. I don't want anything to be like an alien monster movie. But you know, it'd be really fun to sort of ground it. Oh, the dog is going nuts. Ground it in the Martian universe is. I always thought it'd be cool to have them come across Mark's notes and everything he left behind. Because you know how he signs the wall in the movie, and he's been marking off days like that. I always thought it'd be really cool if they came. Someone came back, and found all that stuff and sort of went through it and they had to salvage what Mark had left. So maybe that's the starting point for Danny's movie. Not mine. In my movie, they never get to Mars. They just keep going and then they all die. Yeah. I mean, to take Dan's point of like, it's, it's in the future and there's a colony and some, some young kid, some, uh, some, some teenage heartthrob gets separated from his, uh, <laughs> his Oregon trail traveling family. And then yeah. this, this teenage heartthrob comes across Mark's hab and he's like, he, he doesn't know what he's doing, but he has to kind of back engineer what, uh, what Mark has done to, yeah. uh, to stay alive. I think that'd be cool. Nice. Yeah. I feel like, uh, that I like that because like we never really got any justification of, uh, like that super sexy scene in Jurassic Park where the Barbasol can gets covered in mud, but you expect like, okay, this can's coming back. Right. We haven't seen mm -hmm. it yet. Something like that. That'd be good. Yeah. Yeah. I like that because I think even though Mark knows he's leaving, he leaves stuff there, you know, and all the entire crew leaves stuff there. They have to leave their pictures, their personal effects, all that stuff. So I think it'd be fun to come across at some point, you know, 10, 15, 50 years in the future. Right. Treated as like an archaeological site and they have to use everything that's there. That'd be cool. Cool. So, Matt, you're not financing the Polar Ice Caps Martian movie? <laughs> only, <laughs> Is if, it... uh, only if Matt Damon goes and he reports back to NASA that these ice caps can, <laughs> can support life. And then they come get him and he, he turns on NASA for some reason. Ooh. Uh, interstellar <laughs> oh i haven't seen that so but uh <laughs> I mean, if if you combine the movie life right with ryan reynolds and yeah uh, 
and what you just described, Dan, and like, so it's, it's not like, you know, green men coming to get you, but like polar ice cap and like some legit virus, right, that goes through the crew, like that could be a fairly uh, terrifying movie given the situation the world is in. We'll be thinking about it. We're both going to be up all night. Thanks. <laughs> Yeah. But speaking of yeah, it being late, it's certainly late over on the East Coast. So I think we'll, we should wrap up, let you go to bed. I know that you're probably not tired all the time with a newborn and a small, small <laughs> toddler. Um, I, I bet you probably have plenty of sleep and it's not overwhelming at all. Not at all. They're, uh, I mean... There's only so much uh, you can do as a guy. I feel like uh, there's 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 few times you feel more helpless in life than uh, standing bedside as your wife is in labor and then kind of uh, you know, cheer, cheering her on as she's you know night night feeds the uh, the infant. Yeah. Right. Wow, that sounds exciting. I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we love seeing pics of those of your yeah of your children. That just brightens our our day, our month, and yeah. So. Can't wait to see you on Christmas. That's gonna be, we got our tickets, like you said. So that's Florida. Be... Oh, we've got a uh, we've got a guest bedroom with your name on it. So, oh heck yeah! So excited. We're gonna trash it. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna get wasted and trash the place. <laughs> yeah. Uh, awesome. Well, this has been such a great a delight. Yeah. yeah. Such a great combo. Yeah. Thank you this... so much for coming on. We Thanks. always get our highest listens or our highest amount of listens when we have guest hosts which probably says something shitty about us but yeah they, they, <laughs> people listen for the guests exactly yeah and this is great Matt. it was such a pleasure to do this yeah we want to do this for a while so happy we could finally get this done all right well yeah we'll we'll let you go and and hopefully your kids are well sleeping well through the night, yeah sleeping through the night but is bb sleeping through the night at all yet or no well, grace grayson was a is and was a fantastic sleeper he started sleeping through the night at like two and a half like three months which is almost unheard of bb uh so so the difference between bb and grayson is that grayson like every for the first three months of his life like every three hours he would just like wake up suck down a meal and then like go into like milk comatose right <laughs> and it was like aggressive like like he just like down in one whereas bb will like wake up and just like you know we like lean over like take a hit and then just, like graze <laughs> and like she'll like eat for like three hours and then just, like is like, in like no rush and just like like just like to be awake and like isn't pissed unless you put her down <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so BB's a, a woman of luxury. She's just kind of <laughs> a, a grape here and there, and then she's good for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You cannot wait to come, and we're going to spoil her rotten. Mm -hmm. You're going to be annoyed at how much stuff we have bought and will buy. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, this has been great, and we still don't have a catchphrase. 20, I don't know, eight episodes in, nothing. <laughs> but we'll see you on the next one. <laughs> <laughs>